Monday. Monday was Juneteenth, commemorating June 19th, 1865, when slaves in Galveston, Texas, were freed two and a half years after Abraham Lincoln signed the Emancipation Proclamation. Now, the Civil War ended in April of 1865, but the Confederate soldiers in Texas wouldn't surrender until June of that year. By June 19th, Juneteenth, the 250,000 enslaved people in Texas were finally ordered to be released. But it would take the passage of the 13th Amendment for slaves in Delaware and Kentucky to finally be freed in December of that year. Chris Tomlinson, writing in the Houston Chronicle two years ago, says Texas is one of just a handful of states here in America where prisoners are forced to work for free. Thanks to the loophole in the 13th Amendment, forced labor was outlawed, except in prisons. Now, most states pay their prisoners about a dollar a day. Texas, however, pays their prisoners nothing. They have to work. And if they don't work, then their sentence gets extended or they're put in solitary confinement. Texas has the largest prison population in America, and it's Texas Correctional Industries. It's Texas Correctional Industries was set up in the 1960s. It's a state-run business that brings in close to $100 million a year, manufacturing furniture, repairing cars, and picking cotton. Picking cotton for cities and local businesses. On Juneteenth in Texas yesterday, there were black men still picking cotton for free. That's why Ron DeSantis in Florida and Governor Greg Abbott of Texas don't want our children learning critical race theory. In April of 2021, after Officer Derek Chauvin of the Minneapolis police, after he was convicted in April of 2021, convicted for the murder of George Floyd, the Biden Justice Department opened up an investigation into the Minneapolis Police Department. And on June 16th of this year, last week, the Justice Department issued its scathing report accusing Minneapolis of using excessive and deadly force on blacks and Native Americans living in Minneapolis. This is the Justice Department. The Justice Department accused Minneapolis police of discriminating against people of color, violating the rights of protesters, and using excessive force, as well as violating the civil liberties when dealing with people suffering from behavioral health issues. The report says Minneapolis police use tasers unnecessarily and unsafely. The police, they say, are violent towards compliant suspects, and they fail to render proper medical aid to people in their custody. The Justice Department accused the Minneapolis police of violating the First Amendment rights of protesters and retaliating against journalists who question police tactics. 
The Justice Department also said the Minneapolis Police Department retaliates against citizens who videotape the activities of police officers. The Justice Department says police misconduct is rarely penalized, and the training of Minneapolis police officers does not ensure the constitutional rights of the people living in Minneapolis. Those are the findings of the United States Justice Department. Or you could have just asked a black person living in Minneapolis. They could have told you all this and saved our Justice Department a couple of million dollars. The Wall Street Journal reports that after the death of convicted child sex trafficker Jeffrey Epstein back in 2019, J.P. Morgan Chase ordered a secret investigation into the banking giant's connections, financial connections with Jeffrey Epstein. The Wall Street Journal has gotten its hands on the internal review, an internal review that says Epstein had close relations with several top J.P. Morgan Chase executives and steered several clients to J.P. Morgan Chase. Epstein was especially close to J.P. Morgan Chase executive Jess Staley, who went on to become head of Barclays Bank. J.P. Morgan Chase is suing Staley, claiming he misled them and sexually assaulted one of Epstein's victims. The Wall Street Journal reports that three years after Epstein served time for soliciting child prostitutes, Staley, then working for J.P. Morgan Chase, sent Epstein an email that read, quote, you have paid a price. This is an email to Jeffrey Epstein from Staley over J.P. Morgan Chase. Quote, you have paid a price for what has been accused, but we know what you have done for us, and we count you as one of our deepest friends and most honest of people. That is uh, the head of private banking, for J.P. Morgan Chase, Mr. Staley, Mr. Staley. 350,000 Teamsters driving for UPS voted last week to authorize a strike for as early as August if UPS won't agree to better pay. Here's how CNN, here's how CNN reported this story. Just into CNN, members of the Teamsters Union have overwhelmingly voted to approve a massive strike at UPS. Now, if a strike does happen, it would be the largest against a single employer in U.S. history. A prolonged work stoppage could severely damage the economy, as UPS is the nation's biggest delivery service. That's how mainstream media always covers unions and the threat of a strike. It's always about the damage a strike can do to the economy. It always, the mainstream media always turns the Teamsters, the union activists into the villains. They're the ones shutting down the economy because they want a livable wage and need air conditioning in their in their cabins. So uh, they stop dying from heat stroke. Something fell behind me. Uh, the, the news media demonizes the unions this way. Oh, the, the unions are going to shut down the economy. The news media has, has acclimated us to hurricanes, wildfires, flooding and tornadoes that kill thousands of Americans each year. We're supposed to get used to that. 
We've been acclimated to 50,000 dead Americans each year from guns. We are acclimated to war. We're sending bombs now to Ukraine. We're watching dead Russian soldiers. We're prolonging the fighting. And we've been acclimated to all that because when it comes to making sacrifices for the fossil fuel industry, you know, climate change or the gun makers, we make sacrifices for the gun makers with 50,000 dead Americans each year or the military industrial complex constantly going to war. We're told, we're instructed, we're acclimated to suck it all up and die with dignity because that's the price we all have to pay for freedom. But when workers threaten a strike, when they demand their fair share, suddenly the American people are completely infantilized. We're, we're terrified. We, we can't handle a strike. The economy will shut down and it will be horrible. We can handle 50,000 dead Americans each year from guns. We can handle the hundreds of thousands of dead Americans whose lives are ruined from climate change. We can handle a war in Iraq and Afghanistan that goes on for decades. We can handle seeing our, our bombs being used in Yemen or Ukraine. Th then we have to be adults. And this is the price you pay for freedom, sacrifice. But God forbid there be a, a national strike and they have to cancel Christmas. Thanks to Joe Biden, the railway workers were ordered to go back to work before Christmas in December of last year. They had to accept a contract that, that deprived them of paid sick leave. President Biden signed into law last year a bill that made it illegal for the 100,000 railway workers to strike. A bill that forced both management and union to accept uh, that deal, which was ironed out by Biden, a deal that more than half the railway workers were against. And it is estimated that a railway strike, had we had one back in December, would have cost our economy $2 billion a day. Seems like the unions had all the cards, but Biden said a strike would spark a recession and we can't make that sacrifice. Union membership is the lowest it's been in 100 years. You read these reports about all these shops voting to go union. Union membership is at a hundred year low. Unions have never been doing any worse than they're doing right now. Yes, we all hear about Amazon and Starbucks, but guess what? They haven't reached a deal with the new unions. Amazon and Starbucks refuse to negotiate with the unions. So just because these shops vote to go union doesn't mean Amazon and Starbucks are going to recognize them. The writers are still on strike in Hollywood. I don't see any politicians. Maybe I'm wrong, but I don't see any politicians marching with the writers. See, when it comes to labor, we need a president who's going to do more than call balls and strikes. We need a president who calls strikes. I don't want an umpire. I want a guy who's on the side of the people striking, 
who marches with the workers. Do Barack and Michelle march with the workers? I know they won an Oscar doing a Netflix documentary about work in America. Are they marching with the striking workers? No, because they're the neoliberal Democrats, the corporate Democrats who say management and labor must work as a team. Anybody who says management and labor must work as a team is on the side of management. This is America. Battle lines are clearly drawn. It's Republicans against Democrats, and that's a zero-sum game. In court, it's a zero-sum game. The prosecution versus the defense. And whether you like it or not, at work, it's a zero-sum game. Management versus labor. You cannot be management and on the side of labor. That's not the dialectic. Biden and the corporate Democrats play it both ways, which means they're really on the side of management. Anybody who's trying to thread that needle and say there should be no strife between labor and management is on the side of management with union membership at an all time low, a hundred year low. President Biden had the audacity and yes, I'm voting for him. I'm vo I have no choice. With union membership at an all-time low, Joe Biden had the audacity to kick off his 2024 re-election campaign Saturday in Philadelphia at an AFL-CIO convention. You know, there are a lot of politicians in this country who can't say the word union. Because you know I'm not one of them. That's how bad it's gotten. Vote for Joe Biden. He's willing to say the word union. Now, four years ago, he kicked off his campaign in Philadelphia at a fundraiser hosted by one of the biggest union busting law firms in America. Republicans are so bad, Democrats just have to say the word union and we're supposed to be grateful. I'm proud to say the word. I'm proud to be the most pro-union president in American history. That's not him wiping his nose. He's trying to stop his nose from going full Pinocchio on him. Why is the AFL-CIO endorsing Biden so early? What concessions have they gotten from him? What has he done for unions? What has he done? The most pro-union president in American history, more pro-union than Franklin Roosevelt and Lyndon Johnson. I'm voting for Biden. I'm voting for Biden. But the Wall Street Journal reports this morning that homelessness is on the rise with parts of New England hit especially hard thanks to the spiking cost of rent. As inflation seems to cool down this year, the cost of rent has not. It jumped 8% so far this year. Columbus, Ohio reports a 22% increase in homelessness over last year. The Wall Street Journal cites the end of the COVID pandemic era eviction moratorium 
which Joe Biden and his Justice Department, to their credit, they try to extend the eviction moratorium, but the Supreme Court ruled that the eviction moratorium was unconstitutional. So to Joe Biden's credit, he did try to extend it. It took Cori Bush sleeping on the steps of the Capitol to remind Joe Biden and Nancy Pelosi that the moratorium was about to expire. But that's a for another show. Homelessness is especially acute in California, even though several cities like Oakland, Berkeley and Los Angeles have either extended their eviction moratoriums or have made it especially harder for landlords to remove tenants over non-payment of rent. You know, the solution is simple, and it always is. The solution is build more housing, more public housing. But wealthy Democrats in Los Angeles don't want more housing because that would increase supply, which would lower demand and make their real estate portfolio worth less. So they recognize the problem. They do. But they don't like the solution because that costs them money. The same way wealthy Democrats believe in unions. I believe in unions, right? You always hear that from wealthy Democrats. But I like to think I pay my employees enough so they don't need unions. But don't get me wrong. I'm, I'm all for the idea of unions, just not my employees. Those are your your Democrats, your wealthy Democrats. And that is literally what Joe Biden said in 2020, when all the campaign staffers in the Democratic Party were going union. Bernie first, right? Bernie staffers went union. He immediately recognized them. And uh, Elizabeth Warren and, you know, Buddha judge dragged his feet till it was too late. And they asked Joe Biden, Are, do you support your campaign workers going union. And he said, I'm all for unions, but I like to think I treat my campaign staffers so well, they don't need a union. That's Joe Biden, who held his very first fundraiser in 2019 in Philadelphia inside the law offices of the biggest union busting law firm in America. So it, I'm voting for him because I got a gun against me, against my head. Uh, but, you know, you got to march with the workers. You can't be objective if you're the president. You have to be on the side of labor, not management. Pick a team. The Democratic Party has to pick a team. And they're not on the side of labor. That is why union membership, it is at, it is at 100 year low. The Republicans are doing their jobs. They're destroying unions. That's their job. The Democrats claim to be pro-union. There are executive orders that Joe Biden could sign right now. He could debar Amazon and Starbucks and any other union busting company right now with the stroke of a pen. He could debar these companies from getting federal contracts until they obey the law, until they obey the NLRB and negotiate with these unions. With the stroke of a pen, Joe Biden could do that. The most pro-union 
president in American history. You know how angry that makes me? And I got to vote for this guy. I got to vote for this guy. Maybe not. I live in New York. Maybe I'll vote for Cornell West. Uh, people say things. They lie. They to sound good. I, I'm for unions, just not in, you know, not in my company. I'm, you know, I, homelessness is a problem, but just don't build any low income housing that jeopardizes my real estate portfolio. We hear it in Israel. I'm all for a two state solution. But how do we do it? Well, you put an end to the settlements in the West Bank, you a-hole. Yeah, but those settlers, they, they've been there for a couple of years. But don't get me wrong, I'm, I'm for a two-state solution. Just, you know, one of those states has to be a lot smaller than we originally planned. On Sunday, the right-wing, ultra, ultra right-wing Israeli government announced it would allow 4,000 new settlements on the West Bank in direct defiance of the U.N. as well as U.S. policy. The official American policy opposes Israeli expansion in the occupied territories. But I'm for a two-state solution. I, I just, you know, I just feel bad for those settlers. I don't want to have to uproot them. Then you're not for a two-state solution. Mark Esper, Donald Trump's last secretary of defense, said, I don't know if he was the absolute last. I think he was the second to last. Mark Esper, Donald Trump's second to last, maybe last secretary of defense, said on Sunday that Donald Trump cannot be trusted to sit in the Oval Office if the allegations regarding the mishandling of classified material outlined in that recent indictment are true. Esper made the comments while talking with CNN's Jake Tapper. Well, Donald Trump appeared on Fox News Monday night. Brett Baer, who looks like somebody pumped Fred Flintstone's head with helium, asked Donald Trump one of the greatest questions ever. 16, you said that. I'm going to surround myself with only the best and most serious people. Well, I did do that. This and we time, had tremendous. Look, we had the best economy we've ever had. This the world time has ever seen. Your vice president, Mike Pence, is running against you. Yeah. Your ambassador to the United Nations, Nikki Haley, she's running against you. Your former secretary of state, Mike Pompeo, said he's not supporting you. You mentioned National Security Advisor John Bolton. He's not supporting you either. You mentioned Attorney General Bill Barr uh, says you shouldn't be president again. I uh, calls you the consummate narcissist and troubled man. You recently called and uh, Barr a, a gutless pig. Uh, you're second defense secretary is not supporting you, called you irresponsible. This week, you and your White House called your White House chief of staff, John Kelly, weak and ineffective and born with a very small brain. You called your acting White House chief of staff, Mick Mulvaney, a born loser. You called your first secretary of state, Rex Tillerson, dumb as a rock. And your first defense secretary, James Mattis, the world's most overrated general. You called your White House press secretary, Kayla Kennedy, milquetoast. And multiple times, you've referred to your transportation secretary, Elaine Chao, as Mitch McConnell's China loving wife. So why did you hire all of them in the first place? OK, greatest question I think I've ever heard asked. And it was on Fox News. Brett Baer asked the greatest question. So you would think Trump would say, busted, I fold. 
Because I hired 10 to 1 that were fantastic. We had a great economy. We had phenomenal people in charge of the economy. See, I've been saying this all along. You got to stop watching television. The interviews are a waste of time. Nobody ever admits they're wrong and they lie. He says I had the greatest economy in the more job losses than any president since Herbert Hoover. More job losses than any president since Herbert Hoover. He plunged us into a recession and he killed a million Americans by mishandling COVID. But he keeps repeating the lie. He keeps repeating the lie. Greatest economy ever. This is why interviewing these people is bad for the country, because you're just platforming their lies. At some point, you just have to stop watching these shows. And at some point, the news media has to stop trying to gain access to congenital liars. I don't care what Trump or Biden has to say. They're liars. Do some journalism. Dig up some information. Don't platform these pathological liars, especially with Donald Trump. Why are you interviewing Donald Trump now and asking questions that Jack Smith, the special counsel, will be asking when Trump goes on trial in Miami? Uh, why is Trump being why is he allowed to go on television and contaminate a jury pool. Didn't the judge specifically order him not to discuss the case? Does anybody get that he's not being tried in the court of public opinion where he can lie? He's being tried in a real court where, where you must do something other than lie. You put your hand on a Bible and you have to tell the truth. Why, why, are, why are they... Why isn't the judge sanctioning Fox News for interviewing him? We're in the middle of a serious indictment, a trial that involves national security. He's contaminating the jury pool. You're not going to get anything interviewing these guys. They lie. They never say, you got me. John Eastman clerked with Clarence Thomas. It's a lawyer. He remains best friends with Ginny Thomas, and they were texting back and forth in the lead up to January 6th, trying to overturn the 2020 election. John Eastman is a lawyer. He is the mastermind behind Donald Trump's last ditch effort to overturn the 2020 presidential election. It was his idea to bring in an alternative set of electors, and uh, it was his memo where he outlined how Mike Pence on January 6th could reject the electors and simply declare Donald Trump the winner. Or in the memo, he said Vice President Pence had the constitutional authority to call a delay of 10 days, giving Trump more time to steal the election. Well, let's interview him, too, right? No. California's state bar begins hearings on Tuesday. You can watch them. They're going to live stream his uh, disbarment hearings. There's an effort now to strip. To strip him of his law license. 
I don't need to hear him being interviewed by Brett Baer or on MSNBC spewing more lies. You're not going to catch him. Oh, you got me. You put this guy under oath and you put him on trial and you you have you strip him of his law license. Trump attorney uh, Jenna Ellis uh, admitted in March before the Colorado bar uh, that she had lied about the 2020 election. The Washington, D.C. bar suspended Rudy Giuliani's law license last December. But, you know, he's still on Newsmax. You get stripped of your law license. You've lost your authority. Nobody should be interviewing these criminals. And former Justice Department attorney Jeffrey Clark, who at one time Donald Trump wanted to make the attorney general in the dying days of his administration, he was trying to make Jeffrey Clark his attorney general so Clark could help him steal the election. Uh, But Trump was told if you make Jeffrey Clark attorney general, the entire Justice Department will resign. He's also going before the Washington bar. We've reached the point where there's nothing more for these people to say unless it's under oath. At some point, you got to stop interviewing these liars and strip them of their law licenses and lock them up. Well, I'm David Feldman reminding you to stay strong and protect the weak. Professor Marianne Cummings is a physicist, a real physicist from a from a real college with a real Ph.D. and a D.R. in front of her name. But she doesn't use it. And she's the Parks Commissioner or a Parks Commissioner elected Mm -hmm. Parks Commissioner in Aurora, Illinois, which is the second largest city in Illinois. I forgot what the first one is. And I want to talk to you about climate change and Julian Assange. Let's start with Julian Assange, because there's so much talk about the Espionage Act right now. Donald Trump has been indicted in violation of the Espionage Act. Meanwhile, Julian Assange is sitting in a British prison awaiting extradition Uh, on charges of violating the Espionage Act for leaking documents that belonged to our Pentagon. What were the documents that he leaked? I think what Julian Assange is actually charged with was uh, actually helping Chelsea uh, Chelsea Manning uh, get at classified documents, which he didn't do. Um, but nonetheless, that's that's the charge. And what Chelsea Manning did was, among other things, um, uncover the video of our troops in Iraq doing war crimes. I mean, these were this was horrible gunning down of civilians for sport, and then doing a double round, a double tap, going around gunning down the first responders that were helping them. You know, it's just and, and laughing and laughing. But, you know, uh, Julian Assange had a lifetime of uncovering the uh, the crimes of powerful people. And he used to be a hero to the left or to Democrats until 
you know, um, he uncovered, well, until he uncovered the emails or they, they published the emails that was uncovered by likely a leaker from the DNC because, you know, they claimed he's not going to tell them who, of course, his source is, but they've WikiLeaks official statement is that it certainly was not a Russian source. And many people, including William Binney, who had, and even Scott Ritter, who had looked at the data, said uh, this is much more likely a leak than a hack for various technical reasons. But, you know, um, the Democrats just kind of lost their minds over Hillary Clinton's loss. I mean, I think it really was a... It, was a psychotic breakdown in a way because they were so sure that she would win and they could never quite accept that she lost. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we went on this Russiagate fantasy, uh, you know, ignoring Trump's, Trump's real crimes, of course, but uh, you had to you had to get Trump on something that was a little exotic, you know, like a little like he and the Kremlin uh, colluded during the 2000, 2016 campaign. Um, it was crazy. I mean, yeah, I'm I'm kind of fed up with my my Republican relatives who like go on fantasy. But a YouGov uh, a YouGov economist poll taken in early 2017 found the majority of Democrats believe that Russia directly interfered with the tabulation of votes in our election. In 2016. Okay, that's a problem. I mean, I do. That is a problem. I mean, but I'm I, saying that you know the left and and the the so-called progressive left hasn't made much better. I mean, we're supposed to be the antidote to this kind of toxic partisanship in getting ourselves back to principle, like Medicare for all, like free house, free public education, housing as a right ending the wars, not provoking wars, not provoking wars that could lead to a major nuclear conflagration with a nuclear power. Um, yeah, something like that. So yeah, Julian Assange, that really stands as uh, just a mark of shame for this country. It is just, it, it, it's just a, a, a black mark on anybody who, who thought that they were for free speech and, you know, the, the press and for people covering, you know, shedding a light on grave injustice. And, you know, Julian Assange is, uh, it used to be, even the, even the Obama administration did not prosecute Julian Assange, although they considered it. And didn't he what, pardon uh, Chelsea Manning or he released her? He released. It was not a pardon. It was just really released after he had the Obama admit kept Chelsea in prison and tortured her. Yeah, for, solitary. And solitary, which is, you know, every civil rights attorney has agreed that is horrific and is it's just a very dehumanizing, very cruel thing to do. Yeah. Which has no redeeming value. And the judge, one of the judges in Britain said, I don't want to send Julian Assange to mm -hmm. a, an American prison. He'll commit suicide. Yeah. Or be suicided. Or but be yeah, suicided. I mean, yeah. American, the condition of American prisons are, you know, just a, another national disgrace. It's, it's basically, 
before Keith Abloh went to the dark side, before they came to him with buckets of money, I mean, he used to talk about our prisons as the dumping grounds of our psychic runoff. We don't right. deal with our problems. We dump them on more vulnerable people, and they get dumped into these places. And it's Dickensian. It's Dickensian. I mean, Rikers Island here in New York mm -hmm. City, it's, for lack of a better term, the definition of an insane asylum. That were the, and, and now they're making homelessness a crime. Day camping mm -hmm. is a crime. They call it day camping as opposed to. That, yeah, that sounds so much nicer than yeah. you know, the brutality of not having a place to actually live. Right. You know, we uh, recently on Office Hours went through an episode of Deep Space, Deep Space Nine when they went back to the 21st century, which in Star Trek mythology is a very, very bad time. We didn't learn a damn thing from the 20th century. We had right. to learn it all over again and nearly killed ourselves, really wiped ourselves out. And there was, uh, they end up, the, the crew ends up in a place in San Francisco. And there was just this fenced off area where all these people were. And someone hmm. asked, well, what do they do? Well, nothing. It's just, these are just a bunch of people that have no right to be anywhere. You know, as we don't, as our public spaces become more and more privatized. Well, what's um, uh, before we talk about climate change yeah. and what it's doing to Canada? Well, let's get right to that, please. Yeah, let's do it. So let me give you the argument that the right is making. And by right, I mean the shills for the fossil fuel industry. Canada needs to do a better job maintaining its forests. Mm -hmm. That they've, that budget cuts in Canada, they've neglected their forests and that's what caused these fires. Why is that not true? I, well, I don't really know about Canada, but I know that the arguments that logging companies have made, that, you know, you really need to log to like, you know, put up enough, fire uh, like fire breaks so that you don't have these the logging the, the the stuff that starts fires is the underbrush of course the logging companies don't like that that's uh, that's not valuable for them so you know they cut down trees which are the lungs of of our planet i mean there's nothing more remarkable than a tree in, in the plant world as far as i'm concerned and uh you know it's i i think that the problem with discussing climate change is that it's a, it's a complicated subject and you can't say that any this amount of emissions has caused that amount of fire you and and caused this it's just a whole compendium of things that we have been doing uh we've been we when you change the climate you disrupt natural cycles that have been in place for thousands of years in many cases and Neil deGrasse Tyson, you know, pointed out that, hey, look, you know, yeah, the world has been more volatile place, but we weren't in it. You know, we are we as in modern homo sapiens and our civilization um, developed in a relatively stable time in, in planetary. I mean, there, yes, there's been ice ages here and there. There's been there has been droughts here and there. But overall, planetary wise. The climate has been stable enough 
to maintain a population in, that, that can thrive and continue. And, uh, you know, we, we've got a lot of things that can overcome it. We've got modern architect, uh, agriculture, we've got, you know, some things that we can do to learn to live with it, which means it being climate change, it being the amount of, of uh, greenhouse gases in the atmosphere that are definitely having an effect on the world's heat. Right, right. And by the way, heat is energy and energy can raise the temperature or go into mechanical energy, which gives us whirly worlds. So Earth. short of nuclear power, Mm-hmm. What can we do? What, what are the carbon capture? You've you've been well, that's you've been carbon saying capture that's, will probably have to happen. It's just that the technology isn't there yet for it. But it will probably have to happen and it will be and people. But what they call carbon capture and recovery is mostly recovery. They're trying to, their argument is, well, we've drilled these oil sites. We need to, you know, we need to like make the best use of them. We need to get the oil that's already there out. That's what they mean by carbon capture and recovery. It's it, it, the carbon capture is a bunch of speculative uh, technology that has yet to be demonstrated that it can scale up. Right. And that's, so, you know, um, but as somebody says, look, there, there's a lot of things we can do uh, if we planned our cities better, if we planned our, our transportation systems better. I mean, the time to have done this, of course, was 30, 40 years ago. You know, the times to, we've, you know, we've heard when I was a kid that, you know, that GM was sitting on, on designs for a hundred mile an hour, a hundred uh, mile per gallon car and engine, and I'm sure they did. I mean, I'm sure there maybe not that, but I'm sure there was many technologies that could have helped, but was not going to serve their bottom line. And you know, we didn't look. Um, the entire thing, yeah, I think, is late stage capitalism, which doesn't give us the ability to adapt doesn't give us the ability really to even fight a war for that matter might be an upside but mm -hmm. you know we need to mobilize in this country like we did for world war ii and that means that we're going to be made there might have to be major disruptions to the way we do things and people will have to be taken care of and that is going to be marshalling an enormous set of resources the kind of resources that you know we can just come up with in a second when it comes to war but you know, this is this is not something that a marketplace is going to solve. That private companies are going to solve by themselves. You know, we need an energy grid that will that is not locked into any particular technology that can be adoptable as technologies develop. Uh, yeah, I think nuclear will be a big part of it. It'll have to be. You know, otherwise, and, and I, I so what I what's. Taking, uh, turning the lights on and keeping the lights on in my house are a bunch of windmills about 35 miles west of myself and then the Exelon nuclear power plant, which is 20 miles south. And yeah, how bad? So how bad was it in Aurora? Was it was it as bad as? No, no, it's clear. I went on a 20 mile bike ride on the uh, Virgil Gilman Trail today. It's we we've actually had relatively mild weather in the last week or so. You didn't get the smoke. Nope. 
Well, we did get kind of hazy sunsets, but we haven't gotten the smog like they have out east. And I don't know exactly why that is. Uh, one might be just a matter of the wind changing directions one day, and then we get the smoke. Right, right. But, you know, um, there's all kinds of, I mean, global warming, climate change, greenhouse effect is just one thing. I mean, it's just emissions. It's just waste. It's just, you know, we we have not only no incentives to do better, we, we have incentives to, or companies have had incentives to waste. And, you know, the I'll, example, the nuclear industry has no incentive to change whatsoever, even though technologies that are not even new that have been around for decades could make nuclear power like way more efficient. Our particular line can start dealing with the nuclear waste problem, which is the waste is actually just an enormous energy dense source of carbon free energy for a long time. Um, but you know, it, 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 it's an industry there, there is no money, there is no incentive, there's no profit in it for the, uh, for, the the companies the energy companies that pr provide the nuclear reactors this needs to be a major change from the government it needs to be like you know they don't care about nuclear waste they get paid to store it of course they live <laughs> next door right. to the facilities where the nuclear waste is stored you know so this is a, a problem that's just one example but i mean there are just many things that can be done there's many technologies that can be unleashed but, you know, if you're waiting for the marketplace to sort it all out, companies are going to want their technology to be maximized and they don't want anything new on the horizon that would improve on technology, on their technology and kind of spoil their monopoly or their market share. So, you know, it's, 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 I, I don't know how to change the federal government. I only know how to change things at the very local level. And so is, did you sometimes wonder if maybe the Republicans are right when they talk about the federal government being unmanageable and it really is up to the states and the, the localities? I mean, they're doing it. To well, I mean, Republicans and, and conservative Dems say that the government is unmanageable and that by their in competence on purpose are determined to demonstrate that it is you know we used right. to say this about republicans they don't believe in government they get in government and prove that government can't work from their incompetence and mismanagement right, right. it's a and great so gig i i think that is just self-serving claptrap you know they never say that about a war no it, and we always have know, to be patient when there's a war yeah you know? Oh, yeah. It's going to take time. Yeah. It, Always. Yeah. Is the country unmanageable when you when you look at it? I think, you know, if you overlay America onto Europe, could you fit France, Germany and England in America? I think you can. Right. Yeah. So, look, uh, so I mean, just given look. that, given the wars among Great Britain, France, and Germany, considering I think the EU has an identical population that America has, 
given the history of bloodshed in Europe, is it too much to ask for a landmass such as ours to get along? Um, no, I, I don't. Because A, we're going to have to. And B, you know, um, think about the New Deal and how that was managed and how uh, communities to this day have benefited from the New Deal projects. And that was at a time when half the country didn't even even have uh, didn't even have telephones, you know, let alone everybody to first order being online or having access to a computer. So I don't think it's it's unmanageable. I think people we have let things go on autopilot. We have given up the idea of citizenship in, in, to a great extent. Sacrifice. Uh, Sacrifice. You know, and and it doesn't even necessarily mean sacrifice. Well, it does in the sense that it it takes your, it demands something of your time and energy to be a citizen. Demands that you care about what happens in your community. And that's not always easy to do. I know. I mean, it's it's hard to to campaign, even for people you like. Uh, It's hard to stand up in board meetings when the entire board is against you. It's uh, it's hard when somebody's just out and out lying about you in public. That's a shocking thing. I know it happens, but mm-hmm. when I was first elected, when I somebody who was head of the school board <laughs> was just blatantly lying. Now, of course, she was so ridiculous. You know, it, it kind of didn't matter. So everybody's laughing it off, but still that comes as a shock. I mean, that's a real shock to the system. Right. Somebody that so you know it's um it's it's hard but then uh you know you you get used to it and it's just it's like they're children you're an adult you just you know try to make things a little better as you can i think that um there there was a remarkable article by matt stoller uh a few years ago i think it was in the atlantic when he talked about the new deal and he said the genius of the New Deal and the why it worked so well was that it really wasn't a top-down thing. You know, to the extent possible, the money was managed very close to the community, at the community level itself. That's why people took the money, built schools, they built community centers. He would, um, my One of my colleagues, his father was one of the mathematicians, was commandeered over at University of uh, Illinois Chicago Circle. He and a bunch of his classmates, his graduate students, um, calculated the the log tables before you had calculators, when you had to calculate the logarithm of, of something. They, you know, and I still have a book. It's somewhere in this, in, in the cabinet here in case the, I can't get a, uh, a calculator, um, you know, mathematicians did that. The folkways, the uh, recordings I heard in high school, uh, was a program where people just went out and, and uh, recorded the Appalachian tunes, recorded, recorded mm-hmm. music, all that kind of they stuff. They talked I mean, to it, slaves, pe- people who, last remaining slaves, I believe. And, yeah. Oh, by the way, that's interesting. I just thought of the, I, when I was at, when I was a kid in 1969, we visited my great aunt's uh, home. She was a Dominican number. She was running an old folks home in Cincinnati, which was beautiful. And I came in to sing to an old lady. It was an old black lady who was 106 years old. And she was born a slave. Wow. 
and she gave me a hug and she and so I hugged somebody who was born a slave in this country. So that's amazing. That's weird. But yeah, that but the thing is is that my my whole point about the New Deal was that yeah, people can I think if people don't feel so uh, impotent about things. And I think we've kind of voluntarily let ourselves feel impotent that the, the problems are too big, Washington's too powerful. It's much easier to binge wash, you know, the rest of Better Call Saul than actually mm -hmm. get up and, you know, write that letter to the editor and get that little slot in the city council meeting where you get to go up and talk. You know, it's, uh, you know, it's, yeah, things are kind of easy. Well, John Kennedy, said, and, and it became a cliche, but nobody really, you know, it, it, it was repeated over and over again until it lost its meaning. But think about this. Ask not what you could do for your country. Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you could do for your country. And it's, and through the mists of time, it is a brilliant, brilliant because it's political. When you have when you have political capital, you 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 squander it by not using it. That mm -hmm. you have to ask for favors. That when in in human interactions, when you ask people for a favor, you're going to get more favors out of that person because people like to do favors. The problem is sometimes we don't like to ask other people to do favors. Uh, if this government kept asking its citizens to do things for it, we would get more and more involved. We wouldn't. Well, I think the involved. Yeah, I think that's the key. It's involved. I mean, I was. And they don't want that. They, they, they do not. They, they do not ask us to sacrifice because they're afraid that we'll enjoy it and get in their way. Well, they're afraid that, you know, we you get empowered right. when you actually do things for people. I, I was reading, oh, my God, The Nation, they still send me, you know, send, send me asks to subscribe. But I did read Joan Walsh's article about Cornell West. She oh. attacked him, right? Oh, my Lord. I yeah. mean, talk about privileged bubble, you know, just not getting it at all. Yeah. You know, here is a guy who has stood on principle all his life, got, you know, got fired effectively from from Harvard because he wouldn't back down on his stance uh, on the Palestinians. So he's, you know, announced that he's running. And, you know what? What is the overwhelming sense from the uh, the response from the privileged democratic class, even the left, <laughs> the Nation magazine? Oh, you're just being a spoiler. What are you doing? We got to get behind Joe Biden. Joe Biden doesn't even know who's president half the time anymore. Plus, you know, compare and contrast, an old racist, yeah, corrupt, compulsive liar, whose career really should have ended in 1988. But, you know, he's uh, had a certain retail political skill and he was very, very, uh, he's very useful for very powerful interests. And that's why he is where he is. You've got even like lefties now uh, apologizing for him and trying to prop him up. It's not going to do their cause any good in the short run or the long run. 
but I'm glad that Cornell West is is running. If the Democrats were serious, you would sit down with the Cornell West people, especially if he starts polling. You'd sit down. You they'd already be sitting down with the with the RFK Jr. people and sitting. Okay, what do you want? He keeps a bust of RFK Jr.'s father in the Oval Office. Well, of course, but you know, it's all show. And that's the other toxic thing. It, they've gotten the left and people who were very active for Bernie in 2016 and 2020, many of those, many of us are just corralled into like, well, he said he was going to do something. And that's all you have to do. I keep telling people, watch that video from Lawrence O'Donnell from 2006 or seven. It was a, uh, a documentary about uh, about Ralph Nader in the 2020 run, and Lawrence the O'Donnell, 2000 20, run. Two thousand twenty. Yeah, it was. It was 2006. Oh, is this an unreasonable man? The documentary. Yeah, that, I think that was it. Right. And Lawrence O'Donnell was quoted, and he said, "Look, you know." Uh, I worked in the Senate for 20 years. I never had to listen once to anything from the left. He says, and if the left wants to push the party in the direction it wants to go, it must and must be willing to not vote for them. That's the only thing they'll understand. It's using your leverage. It's not being nihilist. It's not being anything but political. And, you know, um, we ran the experiment. We we ran the experiment. We got we we got lefties and well, supposedly progressives into the house. They had a chance in in 2020 when the Nancy Pelosi's majority was so slim. They actually had leverage because there were times that Pelosi needed their vote. You don't get everything you want, but have a couple of non-negotiable man demands. God a sake! It's like otherwise, why are you there? Right. And now compare and contrast. I mean, it turned out to be six recalcitrant Dem- uh, Republicans did not care about McCarthy. They held out. They didn't care about the Republican Party. They held out and they got concessions. Yeah. We have to wrap it up. Yeah. We, we have to wrap it up. Professor Marianne Cummings, particle physicist. She's the real deal. Parks Commissioner, Aurora, Illinois. And you can follow her on Twitter at Razor Girl. Come back next week. Let's do this next mm-hmm. week. Great. Yeah. Thank you so much.